This morning we're going to go ahead and continue in the book of Romans. We're almost done. I think we might have one, maybe two more after this. We'll be finished with the book of Romans. But uh, I've been really been enjoying it. And today we're going to do Romans chapter 12 and 13. They're relatively short chapters, but there's a lot of good stuff in these. Up to now, Paul has been teaching on on what the uh, that God is not a respecter of persons. You know what? That God has extended his grace to the Gentiles, which is you and I, uh, just like the Jews, actually, it's because they wouldn't, they wouldn't hear it, that God extended salvation and grace to each and every one of us. And the truth is that God is not a respecter of persons in, in the sense of the requirements of sin because all have fallen short of the glory of God, but he's also not a respecter of persons when it, is, it comes to his grace either. He's extended it to all of us. It doesn't matter who you are, what your background is, what you were, what you did, how many siblings you have, what you do for a living, rich, poor, it doesn't matter. God has extended his grace to you. We also learned that by including the Gentiles, he didn't exclude the Jews. I think a lot of what was going on there is they were, they were afraid. They were, they were afraid they were being pushed aside. But the truth is, God has not excluded the Jews. But they still have a plan. God still has a plan and purpose for his life. Now the next couple of chapters, 12 and 13, what we'll look at today, Paul spends some time dealing about what it means to, to basically put on the Lord Jesus Christ, to live a godly life, how we're supposed to treat uh, the brethren in the church, how we're supposed to treat the lost, how we're supposed to even treat our enemies. And also about just uh, the roles that we have to play as Christians, that we all have a, a job to do. We all have a purpose, a plan and a purpose for our lives. We're not actually just saved to come in and sit on a church on Sunday morning, but God wants to do something through each and every one of us. He wants to use you to touch the people around you, to, to, to bring people to, to what we have, to show people the love of Christ. He has a plan for you, a ministry for you, each and every one of us. Amen. So the first uh, scriptures we're going to look at is Romans 12, 1 through 2. It says, Therefore I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice, acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, so that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. So the first thing that Paul begins to tell us is don't be conformed to this world. The truth is that our bodies are not our own, right? Amen? They were bought with a price. So as such, because they were bought with a price, we need to honor the Lord God with our bodies because they're, they're actually His. He paid for them so that we could be used for His glory. We should be using them for His glory and not for our own glory. You know, we shouldn't be, there's a lot of people out there that live in this world and they do everything for themselves to make themselves pumped up, to make themselves look better. They're, they're using their talents and gifts that God has given them to, to glorify themselves instead of to glorify God in their bodies. And some people are even glorifying the devil in their bodies. They're doing stupid stuff. 1 Corinthians 6, 19-20 says, Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and that you are not your own? For you have been bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body. You know, everything that we should do should be to bring glory to God. When, when we're at work, we should be doing the best job that we can do, not to impress our coworkers, not to impress our boss, but to bring glory to God. To show that this is, this is how Christians work. Because we want to honor God in everything that we do. And in doing so, you know what? It's going to impress your boss. It's going to impress your coworkers. You're going to get the raises. But that's not why we do it. We're, we're honoring God in everything that we do. No matter what you do, do it to the best of your abilities according to the gifts that God has given you to honor Him. Then next year it says that we are a living sacrifice. 
a living and holy sacrifice. You know, in the Old Testament, sacrifices were dead things, right? Sacrifices were killed. But we're not like the Old Testament sacrifices where death was required because the death has already been taken care of in Jesus Christ. Amen? But we give ourselves as sacrifices to the Lord. We're a living sacrifice. You know, we honor God by presenting ourselves to Him to be used by Him. That's actually how, by worshiping God, that is, that is our, our way of worshiping, is saying, God, here I am, use me. There's a song we listened to, we sang this morning, it says, you won't relent until you have it all. My heart is yours. That is being a living sacrifice presented to God so that, that He can use you in whatever way that He wants to use you. And sometimes it's going to be ways that you didn't expect. Sometimes it's going to be ways that you maybe didn't want to. You can ask Michelle about that. She really didn't want to be a pastor's wife for a long time. But God wants to use you. And the truth is that God can use people that are willing to offer themselves up to you. Up to Him. I'm sorry. He can use you if you're just willing to, to, to offer yourself with no strings attached, saying, God, here I am. And He will use you for great and mighty things. We just need to be willing. The question is, it doesn't mean you don't need to have be super talented. You don't need to have super strength or abilities of your own might. You don't have to be able to do all these things. God can still use you if you'll just say, "Here I am." Matter of fact, if we look back through the history of the church, you'll see that God has used all kinds of average men and women to impact great things for the kingdom of God. Joseph in the Old Testament was just a punk kid at the time, and God used him to to as he is. And he went through some bad stuff. How many knows that God was using him in, in places he probably didn't want to be? Prison and, and uh, in another country away from his family and slavery. But he said, Lord, here I am. And it goes all through the Bible. Moses, David, everybody. All they said was, here I am, and God used them. We also need to understand, how are you guys doing? Come on in. We also need to understand that we are not of this world. We are actually aliens in a foreign land. The Bible says, Paul here says, do not be conformed to this world. And the reason he says that is, is we are not of this world. We are aliens in a foreign land, like I said in Philippians 3.20. It says, for our citizenship is in heaven, from which, we also, from which also we eagerly wait for a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Our citizenship is in heaven. You're not a citizen of this world. You just live in this world for the time being. It's like being, if I were to go work in Germany for a while, I'm not a citizen of Germany. I'm just there for the time being. I'm actually a citizen of the United States. And the same goes for us. We are in this world right now. but We're not a citizen of this world. We are a citizen of heaven. And as such, we need to be careful that we're not conformed by this world, that the world doesn't change us, that we don't try to fit in. We don't do all, all the things the world is doing just so people won't look at us different. We need to make sure that the culture of this world doesn't overtake us. We need to maintain who we are in Christ. See, the truth is that we can, we can be uh, trying so hard to fit in with the world that the people can't even tell the difference between a Christian and the lost. They should be able to tell, Amen. Then Paul goes on to, on to say that we need to be transformed by the renewing of our mind. This is one way that we're not conformed to this world is we have our mind renewed. And the thing here is, what we notice is that he doesn't say, just hang around till God reaches down and touches you and your mind is all of a sudden renewed. He says, no, this is a commandment. Do not be conformed to the world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. You have to renew your own mind. 
And how do you do that? First, you spend time in the Word. When you read the Word, we know that Romans 10, 17, we just, you know, a few chapters ago we were talking about that. It says, faith comes by hearing and hearing by the Word of Christ. Our mind is renewed and our faith is grown inside of us when we spend time in the Word. We read what God has to say to us and what God has to say about us. Joshua 1.8 says, This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night, so that you may be careful to do according to all that is written in it, that you will make your way prosperous, then you will have success. And we've talked about this before, meditating in the Bible is not the same as Eastern meditation where you empty your mind, but meditation in the Bible is to actually continue to say these things in your mind, to say these things. When he says, they shall not depart from your mouth, is to speak the word of God. To meditate on it is to constantly fill your mind with the Word of God. And then the Bible says that you'll make your way prosperous and you will have success. Your mind will be renewed. And I've testified to this before to all of you guys. I know I spent my life trying to do the right thing, but it wasn't until I finally began to give myself to God, to spend time in the Word, that, that I found that instead of me trying to change myself, my mind was renewed and stuff that was acceptable to me before all of a sudden wasn't acceptable. And stuff that, that was okay, and I, you know, I'd bring up a TV show, and I'd be like, man, I used to love this show, and now it just doesn't appeal to me. I don't relate anymore. There was a change inside of me because I spent time in the Word. And then finally it says that by doing this, we might prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. The truth is that we become a living testament to God's will when we give our lives as living sacrifices. We prove God's will for our lives because His will becomes to manifest in our lives. We see that, that we are strong in Him and that we have favor from Him. And it doesn't mean that never ever anything is going to go bad. It doesn't mean that you're not going to have tough times. But the thing is that God is with you and is a testament. You can get through all these things and people will look at you and say, man, how is he doing it? How is she doing it? Because God is at work in his or her life. God is making a difference. Like I said, doesn't mean that life will always be perfect, but we'll always be equipped to deal with any circumstance that comes into our life. And we will prove what the will of God is to all of those around us by living as a, test, as a, as a living sacrifice to Him. Next in Romans 12.3 it says, For though the grace given to me I say to everyone among you not to think more highly of himself than he ought to think, but to think so as to have sound judgment as God has allowed, allotted to each a measure of faith. You guys ever met somebody that thought higher of themselves than they, uh, than they should have? Than they ought to? Pride's a dangerous thing. The problem is, is it, it makes it so you can never see God because you're so busy looking at yourself. You know, when you're, when, you're, when you're looking in a mirror, it's hard to see everybody else around you, and particularly God. The story of a, of a young, a, young uh, a brand new lawyer just gets into his office. He becomes one of the partners in the firm and he just gets into his brand new office and he sits down at his desk. And uh, man, he's sitting there and he's like, man, this is, this is a huge desk. I got my own office. I finally made it. I finally did it. I'm, I'm, I'm important now. I am somebody now. And he hears this knock on the door. It's his first client coming in. He's like, man, I'm going to make myself look important. I'm going to make myself look good. So he picks up his phone, and he says, come in. And on the phone, he goes, Mr. Rockefeller, this is the deal that I have for you. Are you going to do it or not? Because you know, this is your only opportunity. I can, I can do this for you, or you can walk away now. You let me know. And he hangs up the phone, and he looks at the guy. He 
says, can I help you? And the guy just looks at him and grins and says, yeah, I'm just here to hook up your phone. <laughs> you know, in, in being prideful and trying to think higher of himself than he ought, he made himself look foolish. <laughs> See, the thing is, too, though, is the ought to think is the important part here. What it doesn't say is to think of yourself as lowly or worms. Do you ever met people that are uh, almost like the complete opposite? That, oh, I'm so low. Everyone's better than me. Every, you know, they just try to, their, their, their humility is almost a source of pride for them. You know, there's no one more humble than me. That, that's, that's pride in and of itself. The truth is that you need to recognize your gifts that God has given you. You need to recognize what God has done in you and use them. To, to recognize that you have a gift and use it for the glory of God is not the same as being prideful. It's not the same. The problem is, is we try to take credit for it ourselves. You know, I'm such a good singer. I'm such a good administrator. I'm such a good this and that. When the truth is, is God is the one that gave you these gifts. God is the one that made it possible for you to, to do these things. But at the same time, we have to recognize what they are and, and not downplay them so much that, you know, we never use them. You know, you can downplay your gifts so much because you're trying not to be prideful that you, you can never be used by God because you're, you're so afraid for God to use those things. And that's just as bad as having too much pride in, which, in the gifts that you've been given. And then it says we're to have sound judgment. To have sound judgment is to realize who you are in Christ. Who Christ, recognizing who Christ made you to be, to say that I am forgiven, that I am valuable, that I am worth something, that I am more than a conqueror, that I'm victorious, to say these things is to not be prideful. It's to recognize what Jesus Christ has accomplished in you. Attributing your talents and qualities to God and recognizing that God has blessed, with, blessed you with them is not the same as being prideful, but it's that sound judgment. The truth is, we each have a, a part to play. We each have our own skills and abilities, and we each have a plan and purpose for our lives. And God will use us to impact the world around us as long as we don't get caught up in, who, in all these things that we can do. God will use us to impact the world around us. Amen? Romans 12, 4 through 8 says, For just as we have many members in one body, and all the members do not have the same function, so we who are many are one body in Christ, and individually members one of another. Since we have gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, each of us is to exercise them accordingly. If prophecy according to the proportion of his faith, if service and his serving, or he who teaches in his teaching, or he who exhorts in his exhortation, he who gives with liberality, he who leads with diligence, and he who shows mercy with cheerfulness. The truth is that the body of Christ is made up of, of many different parts that each have a function to, to, uh, to fulfill, a role to fulfill. And there's nothing in this world that is not made up of different individual pieces that come together to perform a function. No business operates with just salespeople. Could you imagine a business that was just salespeople? Man, they could be the best salespeople in the world and sell tons of stuff, but if there's nobody there to deliver the product, if there's nobody there to install the product, how many know your business is going to fail? Or vice versa, what if you have an incredible group of people that can install anything and they can, they can put this product in, they can make it work for you, but if nobody sells it, then the business is going to fail. 
Or could you imagine a car of just completely made out of steering wheels? I mean, the picture that pops up in your mind is something that's ridiculous, right? But not only does it look ridiculous, but it's obviously not going to function. You know, without a motor, the car will not be powered to drive forward. Without a gas tank to give fuel to that motor, the motor is not going to run. Without tires, even with a motor, the car is just going to sit on the ground and just make noise. The truth is, all of the individual parts work together. And I think any of you know that, that have had a car that have broken down, you can say, man, this car, it's beautiful. The paint job is still good. All the tires are great. I got all the tread I need. The rims look great. The interior is awesome. But if the motor doesn't start, your car is pretty much worthless. If you have a piece broken down, your car doesn't work the way it's supposed to work. And the church is the exact same way. We, we all have a role to fulfill. And when, when one of us isn't doing what God has asked us to do, we're not filling that role, how many of you know that uh, the church doesn't run as smoothly and as efficiently as it should? And, and you know, we even see the impact as it is in our in our church right now, when people are stepping into their roles and, and doing what God has called them to do. How many, how many of you notice that worship is a little bit more dynamic now that Monique is up here? Because that's what God's called her. God is, is using her to be part of the worship team, and you see that there's a difference. And the truth is, is, as more people come into the church and more of the roles get filled up, and as each and every one of you step into these different roles, you're going to see the, the church operate more efficiently. I mean, how much closer did we all become when we started doing a life group at your house? I mean, that was a, a role that needed to be filled. And once we stepped into that role, the church is running smoother and, and running better because we are closer as a family. Amen. And you'll see that all throughout the church. We all have a role to play, a role to fulfill. How many know that children's church just wouldn't be the same if we didn't have teachers that were willing to go out there and teach? I'd go out there and have a mess in my garage every single day, stuff torn down. I thank God for people stepping up and, and fulfilling their role in the body of Christ. But it's also important to recognize that we're not out just looking for the best position, the one that's in the, the spotlight, looking the greatest. You know, everybody can't be up here in, in the front singing you know, because, because it looks good. Oh, I, I want to be up front so people can hear me. Everybody can't be a pastor because it's up front. And it's a position of authority because the truth is that we're not all called to do the same things. Some of you are called to be pastors. Some of you are not. Some of you are called to be evangelists or prophets or teachers. Some of you are not. We all have a role to fill. And we have to be careful that what we're, the position we're looking for is based on our gifts and abilities and not based on the limelight or what it might look like on the outside. Amen? You know, there's a reason that Michelle heads up the children's portion of, of this church. That's not my gifting is to deal with kids. Ask Kat and I. <laughs> That's not my gifting. Kids are not my gifting. To do it, to teach in, in, in that capacity, it's not my gifting. And there's a reason why that Michelle heads that up. Because if I was trying to do it, one, I'd be trying to do too many things at once. I can't fulfill every role in the church myself. And I would be incredibly overwhelmed, even more so than I am now at times. And two, she's just better at it than me. And I recognize that. So I'm going to let her fulfill her role in the church while I fulfill mine. Amen? Mm. 
In Acts 6, 1 through 4, it says, Now at this time, while the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint arose on the part of the Hellenistic Jews against the native Hebrew, because their widows were being overlooked in the daily serving of food. So the twelve summoned the congregation of the disciples and said, It is not desirable for us to neglect the word of God in order to serve tables. Therefore, brethren, select from... Among you, seven of good reputation, full of the spirit and of wisdom, whom we may put in charge of the task, but we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. This is a biblical example of the men of God not trying to do everything, not trying to fill every role, but actually finding people that can fulfill the role in the body of Christ. See, if you remember, the, 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 some of the widows weren't being fed correctly, and they asked the apostles to take care of it. Now, how many know the apostles could have been the ones that stood in the line to make sure that all the widows were treated equally. They could have been the one dishing out the soup had they wanted to be. But that wouldn't have been a good use of their talents and abilities because that's not where their gifting lies. You know, there are people that are gifted in that area in hospitality and serving. But the apostles, their gifting was the ministering of God's word and that's where they were. We each have a role to play and we should be fulfilling our own role. But how many know that all the while I'm saying this, that doesn't mean that sometimes you're gonna ha- not going to have to do some things that maybe you don't think is your gifting. You know, there's, there's stuff that has to be done. And if nobody else will do it, rise up and do it. Fulfill the role. Do it till someone who is called there to do it is there to do it. You know, there's, there's giftings that each and every one of us have, and God wants to use those for us. But there's also stuff that, and I've used the example more than once because it's such a, a contrasting example, is someone's got to clean the toilets, right? And it's not glorified. It's, it's definitely not, you're not going to uh, run home and, and, and tell your friends, guess what I get to do at church? But sometimes we have to stand up and do it. If God's given you a gift, use it. But we also need to make sure that we're doing it with the, in the confines, within the authority of the church. It doesn't mean to be a vigilante and go out and do your own thing. We still have to submit to leadership and authority. But if God has given you a gift, come to your leadership and tell them, I feel God is doing this. My God has gifted me. You know, there's plenty of stuff to do in this church. And if you feel like that you have something that God wants to use you, let me know and we'll see what we can get done about it. Amen? And if you're not sure what your gifting is, I'll find you a place and we'll figure it out. We'll do something. Amen? Romans 12, 9-13 says, Let love be without hypocrisy. Hypocrisy. Abhor what is evil. Cling to what is good. Be devoted to one another in brotherly love. Give preference to one another in honor, not lagging behind in diligence. Fervent in spirit, serving the Lord. Rejoicing in hope. Persevering in tribulation. Devoted to prayer. Contributing to the needs of the saint. And practicing hospitality. Now we're getting the shotgun list of what it means to live a godly life when we're interacting with others. First, we see that love is to be sincere without hypocrisy. We need to make sure that when we speak, what comes out of our mouth is the same thing that happens in the actions of our body. We can't say that we love somebody and then treat them poorly. We can't say out loud that we we care about the loss of this city, but then do nothing to reach out to them. Amen? We need to make sure that our actions are, are in sync with our mouths. We can't say that we love one another, but then gossip and slander each other behind our backs. And this doesn't just mean people in the church, but this also means the, the lost as well. You can't say that you have love for the lost, but all you do is tear them down at all times. 
You know, we can be, we can be opposed to their actions, but we still love the people. 1 Timothy 1.5 says, But the goal of our instruction is love from a pure heart and a good t- conscience and sincere faith. That's what the goal of our love is. It's to be from a pure heart. And then he says to abhor what is evil, which, like I said, is not the same thing as abhorring those who do evil. There are people that are going to do bad things, and we're not to hate them. Jesus Christ went and had dinner with the, with the thieves and the liars and the cheats and the sinners. He spent time with them. Now, how many know Jesus was not, was not uh, being okay with what they were doing? He was not, uh, what's that word I'm looking for? Advocating, maybe. He wasn't advocating their actions. That's not the word I'm looking for, but that'll work. Because he ate with them. But he did love them. And then it says that we're to be devoted to one another in brotherly love. We need to be, have, be decided in our hearts to be available to one another, to be there for one another, to, to help out. And that doesn't just mean uh, physically, but spiritually, emotionally. We need to be there and devoted to one another in brotherly love. If someone's got a problem, we should be there for them. We shouldn't be making excuses to why we can't help. But what can we do to help? And that goes for the stuff that's not fun to do. How many people like to help people move? But we do that in brotherly love. For We're devoted to, to our brothers and sisters. And I tell you what, I had a, a group of people out here helping me lay gravel in the backyard. I bet you that wasn't the best way all of us wanted to spend our Saturday. But because we're devoted to each other in brotherly love, we take care of each other. And then here it says that we are to give preference to one another in honor. What that means is to, to consider, to treat others as more important than ourselves. Which is sometimes hard to do as by nature we're kind of selfish. But we're to treat people as more important than ourselves. To put them ahead of us. And then it says, not lagging behind in diligence. And what that means is that we need to be steadfast. We need to, to not give up, but to be consistent in our love for one another and also in serving the Lord. Then we have to have a fervent in spirit serving the Lord. That's to be, have a passionate spirit inside of us and loving one another and serving the Lord. We should be passionate about it. <clears throat> and then he says, we rejoice in hope. How many people know the difference between hope and happiness? Happiness is the result of your circumstances. You know, you get a raise at work, you're happy. You, uh, you come home and, and uh, your spouse has got dinner on the table, that makes you happy. That makes me happy. <laughs> you know, there's, there's all these things that circumstances make us happy. But joy is in spite of our circumstances. You know, you can have joy when you come home and dinner's not on the table. Thank God. I'm a joyful man. <laughs> Just <kidding. laughs> you, you, you can have joy when you go to work and things aren't going right. You can have joy when you find out someone in your family has sickness or cancer. You can still have joy. You may not be happy, but you can still have joy. Because that's in spite of your circumstances. That's a result of, of what Jesus Christ has done in you. It says we persevere in tribulation. That's where that joy comes in, to persevere, to persevere, to get through it. 
And it says we contribute to the needs of the saints and practice hospitality. Once again, that's what I said. We, we take care of one another. You know, we've had the opportunity to contribute to the saints as a body in this church. And I thank God that, that when we can, we can reach out and touch somebody and be a part of the lives we can contribute to, to their, to their well-being, even if they're struggling. And we can do that also in prayer as we stand in prayer for all of those who, who are hurting and have sickness right now. And we can do that in the same way by being there emotionally for somebody, to, to just be there for someone to hug. That's contributing to the needs of the saint. And then finally we talk about practicing hospitality, which is basically the, the welcoming of people, a generous reception of friends and also of strangers which I'm, I'm thankful because I've seen everybody in this, in this room do that, especially those who have opened up their homes. Finally, Paul says, or next Paul says, that we are to be at peace with all men. He says, bless those who are persecuted. <laughs> I'm having a rough, my head is speaking faster than my mouth today, big time. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. Rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. Be of the same mind toward one another, and do not be haughty in mind, but associate with the lowly. Do not be wise in your own estimation. Never pay back evil for evil to anyone. Respect what is right in the sight of all men, if possible, so far as it depends on you. Be at peace with all men. Now, the first thing we see is how we're supposed to interact with our enemies. Persecute, persecute, bless those who persecute you. <laughs> Praise God. Bless those who are persecuted. <laughs> I'm having a hard time with that word today. Bless those who persecute you. And this is where it gets a little difficult. See, right now, as you guys are all persecuting me for my speech, I'm, I'm going to bless you anyway. <laughs> Praise God. <laughs> you were laughing too. I saw that. <laughs> but basically, is treating the... <laughs> derailed back on track treating those who treat you poorly is difficult treating those who treat you well treating them well is, is quite easy you know it's even even unsaved people can do that if someone is treating you well it's very easy to return that but when they're treating you poorly things get a little more difficult and the truth is that jesus taught the very same thing in matthew 5 44 he says but i say to you love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you and we see that jesus and stephan are both examples in the New Testament of that very thing. Do you remember when, when Jesus was on the cross, he says in Luke 23, 34, he says, Jesus was saying, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. Jesus said, forgive them, they do not know what they were doing. Jesus was, was enacting the very same thing that he was teaching. And then in Acts 7, 59-60, this is when Stephen was being stoned. It says, they went on stoning Stephen, so he called on the Lord and said, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Then falling on his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. Having said this, he fell asleep. I mean, how many of us would have been in the same, done the same thing in that same position? That's what we're called to do. But I think a little bit in me would be like, strike him with lightning, Jesus. Get him, Jesus. <laughs> Praise God. Guess who's grounded after church? <laughs> Making fun of the pastor. <laughs> Praise God. <laughs> and we also find out that uh, I didn't switch the verse. It says, then rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. How many know that, that we should be rejoicing with our brethren when, when things go well in their life? 
When someone gets pregnant and they're having a baby, we should rejoice. When someone gets a raise at work, we should, we should rejoice. When, they, when they're doing well, we should be rejoicing with them. And how many know that when someone's hurting, that we should hurt with them? You know, we don't just brush it off, but, but we're there with them when they're hurting. Finally, it says we should be the same mind towards one another and to see each other as Christ does. To be the same mind of, of towards one another is to see people how Christ sees them. In James two one through sorry, in Second Corinthians five sixteen it says, Therefore from now on we recognize no one according to the flesh, even though we have known Christ according to the flesh, yet now we know him in this way no longer. You know, we shouldn't see each other according to the flesh, but we should see each other as Christ has made us, which is perfect and valuable and worthwhile. Even though people do silly things, even Christians will do silly things, we don't see them based on their actions, but we see them based on what Christ has done inside of them. He says, don't be haughty in mind, but associate with the lowly, and do not be wise in your own estimation. Once again, Paul's dealing with pride. As, as Christians, we need to be very careful with our pride, because that's one thing that will destroy you faster than anything is pride. So we should not hold our station in high esteem and associate with all regardless of station or social status. Do not be haughty in mind, but associate with the lowly. James 2, 1 through 4 says, My brethren, do not hold your faith in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ with an attitude of personal favoritism. For if a man comes into your assembly with a gold ring and dressed in fine clothes, and there also comes in a poor man in dirty clothes, and you pay special attention to the one who is wearing the fine clothes and say, you sit here in a good place and you say to the poor man, you stand over there or sit down by my footstool. Have you not made a distinction among yourselves and become judges with evil motives? You know, we're not to look at people based on their circumstances or, or the clothes that they wear, or the money that they have. But we're supposed to look at them how Christ sees them. And the truth is that we are all infinitely valuable in Christ. And then he says, never pay back evil for evil to anyone. You know, paying back evil to somebody affects you probably more than it affects them. And this not only includes retaliating against somebody, you know, someone did this to me, so I'm going to do it back to them. That just brings you down to the level, puts you in the same place as them. But what about when somebody has done something and you use it as a license to do your own, make your own bad decision? And as an example, what I mean is, have you ever, have you ever had the thought, well, if they're not going to do that, if they're going to do that, then I'm going to do this. Or maybe, well, if, if he's not going to go to church, then I'm not going to go to church. You know, that, that thought there, it's kind of repaying evil with evil. You see somebody else do it, so you use it as license to do your own thing. Don't ever let what somebody else does be a license for you to, to have an impact in your relationship with God. Finally, it says, do what is right in the sight of all men. Respect what is right in the sight of all men. What does that mean? Don't do stuff that's going to offend and hurt people. You know, there's some things that you might be lawful to do, but it's still going to affect somebody. It's going to hurt somebody. As Christians, we're supposed to be in the highest esteem of everyone around us. And then finally, this is the most important thing right here. It says, if possible, so far as it depends on you, be at peace with all men. What that means is if you're, if you're having a problem with somebody, that you can't go, I'm not talking to them until they apologize and turn your back on them. You can't 
as far as it depends on you, you need to make an attempt to reconcile with them. Now, there are going to be times when you reach out to somebody and they refuse to be reconciled with you and, and you're no longer under obligation because there's nothing that you can do about that. But the truth is, as far as it depends on you, you need to make sure you're at peace with all men. Romans 12, 19-21 says, Never take your own revenge, beloved, but leave room for the wrath of God. For it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. But if your enemy is hungry, feed him. And if he is thirsty, give him a drink. For in so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. And there's a story told about a trucker who's in a, who's in a diner. And he's sitting down and he's eating his meal. And I just getting started when these two big biker guys walk in and they see this trucker sitting on the counter and they walk up to him and they take his tray and they throw his tray on the floor and they begin to, to laugh at him and point at him and the trucker just gets down, he picks up his food, he sets it on the counter and he pays his bill and he walks out to his truck. And as he's walking out and getting into his truck, the bikers are inside. They said, man, that guy is such a wuss. He is such a, a girly man. He can't even stand up to himself. I mean, he, what a man. What, what kind of a man is that? And the waitress goes, man, he's a terrible driver, too. He just ran over two motorcycles outside. <laughs> See, the thing is, it's a funny story. It's humorous. But the guy could have left out of there with an incredible testimony. How he turned the other cheek, he stood up. And he didn't repay evil with evil, but instead in this story, he decides to get his own revenge. See, revenge is a hard thing because sometimes we think that if we can just punish them, everything's going to be okay. You know, I'm going to feel much better if, if they get what they deserve. But the truth is, is it never makes you feel better. Anybody that's ever lived in that situation, if, if you get your revenge, nothing's changed. But the truth is that there is payment to be had for these things. You know, if they're not saved, in Romans 2.5 it says that uh, because of an unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself in the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God. There is payment for these things if they're not saved. And the truth is, truth is if they're saved, Jesus has already paid that price. And then finally, this is one here that's probably a quite misunderstood verse. Because it says, If your enemy is hungry, feed him. And if he is thirsty, give him a drink. For in, doing, in so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. How many in your mind's eye when you read this verse, you think that by being good to them, I'm actually hurting them because I'm going you know, to set them on fire. But the truth is, it's not what this verse is saying. There's a couple things that the, the scholars out there that look to what this verse actually means, and they're smarter than me, so we'll, we'll talk about the two primary, uh, the, not translation, but the primary interpretations of what it's talking on here. The first is, is that there were times in those days, yeah, they didn't have a, you know, fast ignition on their stove. If the, if the fire went out in their house, they had to find a way to get fire into their house. And one of the ways they would do that is they would go to a neighbor and they would put coals in a pan that they would carry on their head back to their house so that they could relight the fire in their house. See, the truth is that he's not talking about do good to them so that in effect you're actually doing bad to them, but in effect you're actually taking care of them when you do these things. You're doing the neighborly thing. You're helping them start his fire. Again, you're, you're making life better for them. 
The other thing that it could represent that it might be pointing to is, is uh, there was an Egyptian ritual that if you, were, if you were repentant about something, you showed your repentance by carrying coal in a pan around on your head. And you were showing your repentance. So the truth is, what, what he's talking about here is that if, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him a drink. Because in doing so, you'll be taking care of your neighbor and you could even lead him to repentance. By doing good to people that are persecuting you and to people that are doing bad to you, you can actually make an impact and change in their life. They might actually see what you're doing and do the right thing instead because you have the right attitude towards them. Amen? I'll try to get fast for the last three bit here. We've got a lot, lot, lot left to go and we're running out of time. Romans 13, 1 through 2, it says, Every person is to be in subjection to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God. And those who exist are established by God. Therefore, whoever resists authority has opposed the ordinance of God, and they who have opposed will receive condemnation upon themselves. Now, first thing I want to point out here is it says that there is no authority except from God. What this doesn't mean is that God endorses all tyrants or is responsible for the sins of bad leaders. That's not what he's saying here. But whatever, how, what he is saying is that governing authority is actually established by God in the first place. The reason why we have authority is because men are broken and we need rule and authority in our life. Can you imagine a world without government? What would be happening to the people if there was no law? Because the laws exist, the authority exists to, to in essence, keep us in check. Even, even with the laws, people still do horrible things. But it says that every person is to be in subjection to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those which exist are established by God. The truth is, we may not always approve of the man in office, but we need to respect the office, as it were. You know, Daniel and Joseph were both examples of men who even though they were not citizens of where they were, respected the rule of those who were in charge. You know, Joseph was in prison at the time when the, when the Egyptian uh, uh, pharaoh came and said, hey, will you come interpret my dream? And Joseph could have said, no, you're not Jewish. I don't have to listen to you. I don't do what you say. But instead, he respected the authority. And what about Daniel? Daniel was actually in captivity to the Babylonians, the Babylonians at that point. But when he was called on to interpret dreams, he submitted to the will of the authority of the place that he was. He didn't stand up and act ungodly, but he was actually godly by submitting to authority, even though they were the, they were the, the enslaved him. And do you remember the, the little girl who was with Naaman? Naaman was the, uh, was the general for the, for the Gentile army at the time who had, who had uh, leprosy, had sores all over his body. And the little girl was enslaved by him. He was actually one of her slaves. They were cap- she was captured in a raid. But she's the one that told him about the prophet to go to, to Israel and to get healed because she respected the authority of physician even if it's not something that she would have wanted. Amen? Remember I once uh, got a ticket from one of those red light cameras. Anybody got hit by them red light cameras? I got a ticket by one of them once. And I tell you what, there's, there's a lot of things I don't agree about. This. First off, I don't, I don't agree that they're in place at all because they cause so many problems. But also, the way Arizona considers an intersection is ridiculous. Because the way it works out, if you've ever seen those red light cameras, you'll notice that there's, in the big intersections, there's a stop line, 
crosswalk line, the next crosswalk line, and way out there is actually the intersection line. So if you don't stop before way out there, and you're, you're out, so if you're in the crosswalk, and you see the light coming, if you stop there, it's illegal because you can't stop on a crosswalk, but if you keep going, it's illegal because you're not in the intersection yet. So one-tenth of a second, I didn't cross the line. I wasn't across the line, and I got a ticket. Now, the truth is, I don't agree with the cameras. I don't agree with how they, they put this law in place, but the truth is, I broke the law according to what the law is, so I, I paid my fine. You, you put yourself in subjection to the authorities that are out there. You know, the truth is, I find humor in people... Have you ever met somebody that's always trying to skirt as close to the law as they can, like they're trying to make some sort of, uh, some sort of statement? I was, riding, <laughs> I was riding with a guy the other day from work, and he was talking about how, you know, what the laws are. If you come up to a, uh, a police officer and pulls you over, you just have to roll down your window a little bit and say, I don't, I don't uh, choose to answer any questions at this time, and you can just be obstinate and stubborn. And this, legally, you can do that. You can roll your window down and say, I don't, I don't want to... I don't want to answer any questions at this time. And they can't do anything about it. All they can do is make you give your license and registration. But I'm listening to this and I'm thinking, why would you want to cause that kind of trouble for yourself? You're, you're, you're putting yourself in a situation where they're going to look at you harder. They're going, you're just being stubborn, especially if you've got nothing to hide. What is the problem? And I find it humorous, but we do that. People do that kind of stuff and they try to, be, to push back against authority. Matter of fact, I remember when I used to work for Frito-Lay, I was really upset with how things were being run at the job. The leadership was poor. There were things that were going on that were bad. So what I was doing was just being obstinate and stubborn in any way that I could while not technically breaking the rules. And I look back at it now and I'm like, what a foolish idiot. But at the time, you know, I was really proud of what I was doing because I was following all the rules to a T. But in every way that I could, I was making it hard for my leadership without technically doing anything wrong. And I look back at it, and truthfully, all I did was make my time at work terrible. I didn't accomplish anything. I mean, guess what? They're all still working there. Frito-Lay is still around. I didn't accomplish anything. But my life at work at that time was miserable. It was terrible. I had a, such a hard time because I was so jaded about what was going on. And the same thing is, is true in this situation here. If, we're, if we try to push back against authority, we don't do anything but cause problems for ourselves. Romans 13, 3-4 says, Rulers are not a cause of fear for good behavior, but for evil. Or do you want to have no fear of authority? Do what is good, and you will have praise from the same. For it is a minister of God to you for good. But if you do what is evil, be afraid, for it does not bear the sword for nothing. For it is a minister of God, an avenger who brings wrath on the one who practices evil. Truth is, rulers are not there. The authority is not there to go after law-abiding citizens. If you're doing what is right, you have no reason to fear. If you're doing the right thing, we don't have a problem with authority. But even more so, if you do what is good, you can even receive praise from those very same people that are out there to, to cause fear in those who misbehave. And then finally, we learn here, learn here that, that people who are in authority are actually ministers of God. It says, for it is a minister of God for you for good. And then we find out here for those who, that they bear the sword for those who do evil. It says, for that is a minister of God. And it's interesting because they don't even have to be saved to be ministers of God, doing God's work by upholding rule and authority, because like we learned earlier, that God is the source of all authority. 
like I said, it doesn't mean that he endorses those who do bad, but the truth is that the, the reason there is authority in the first place is because it ultimately was extended by God. The truth is that the authority, the rulers, rulers and authority of our life, of our, of our country, of our government, are there for a reason. They're there to keep order, and they're there for our best interest, the best interest of the people. Even though sometimes it may not feel that way. And the truth is, the way we can affect that is, is how we vote. If you don't like how things are running, vote differently. And pray for those who are in power. Because the truth is, no matter what we do, no matter what laws are changed, no matter what's happening, that will not change this country. Laws can never change the country, but people need a new heart inside of them. You want, you want a country to be run different? Pray for the hearts of those who are running our country. Pray for those who are saved. Pray that they would act like they're saved. And those who aren't saved, pray that they would have an opportunity to receive the gospel and that the Holy Spirit would work on their heart. That's how we'll affect change in our, com- in our country, by changing the people, not by changing the laws. Romans 13, 5-7 says, Therefore it is necessary to be in subjection not only because of wrath, but also for conscience sake. For because of this you also pay taxes, for rulers are servants of God's, devoting themselves to this very thing. Render to all what is due them, tax to whom taxes due, custom to whom custom, fear to whom fear, honor to whom honor. First thing he says is because of wrath. It is necessary to be in subjection not only because of wrath, basically because if you act a fool, the law is going to come down on you and put you in prison or whatever, but also for your conscience' sake. You know, it's the right thing to do to submit to authority in the governing places. You know, you don't have to second-guess your actions when you're, when you're living according to the rules of the land. You don't have to second-guess or feel guilty about your actions. Anybody ever done something wrong and feel guilty about it? If you just do the right thing, you don't even have to feel that way. We don't have to live in fear. How many of the people that are constantly breaking the law are living in fear that one day they'll get caught? We don't have to look over our shoulders to make sure that there's not a police officer right over there because of what we're doing. We can be an example to our children and to those around us. And all this is for our conscience sake if we'll do the right thing and, and be subject to authority. And then finally we have taxes. Who likes paying taxes? Huh, strange, nobody raised their hand. <laughs> the truth is, I'm, I don't like giving my money away any more than the next guy, and, and I'm not always happy with how our tax money is being spent. But in order to be a godly Christian man, I need to pay my taxes. One, it's how our governments become, are able to, to be the minister that God has put them in place to be, to be a minister of God that he intended but it's, it's the right thing to do. It's how we set an example as godly men and women. And then finally, Paul exhorts us to, to render what is due to whom it is due to. Tax to whom tax is due, custom to whom custom, fear to whom fear, and honor to whom honor is due. And we show honor to those who are in positions of authority. Like I said, maybe not necessarily because of the man, but because of the position that they're in. Amen. Romans 13, 5-7 says, Yes, 8 through 10, sorry. <laughs> Romans 13, 8 through 10 says, Owe nothing to anyone except to love one another. For he who loves his neighbor has fulfilled the law. For this you shall not commit adultery, 
You shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet. And if there is any other commandment, it is summed up in this saying, You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor, therefore love is fulfillment of the law. First thing we hear here is, Owe nothing to anyone except to love one another. Debt is a bad thing. It can be, it can destroy your life. And it can cause all kinds of incredible problems, but most importantly, it can cause you to be unable to serve the kingdom of God. If you're in so much debt that you can never get out of it, what happens if God calls you to Africa to do some mission work in Africa? You're not going to be able to go because you've got to pay your bills. And then it says we are to owe nothing to one another. This means that we're also not to, to loan to one another either. Luke 6.35 says, Love your enemies and do good and lend, expecting nothing in return. And your reward will be great. See, the truth is that we should be taking care of one of another, but not loaning to one another, but not lending. We're to owe nothing to one another. We should be taking care of one another in brotherly love. And then finally we find out what this means, that loving one another is actually fulfillment of the law. You remember we talk about the, the Ten Commandments, and he lists a few here. You should not commit adultery. You should not murder. You should not steal. You should not covet. All of these are fulfilled if we'll just love one another. How many of you know that you don't steal from people you love? If you love somebody, you're not going to murder them. You're not going to try to take somebody's wife or husband if you love them. If you will just love one another, you're actually fulfilling the law and love. If we would just live this way, it would be such an incredible light to the world. What we have would be desired by all. They would see what we have, and it would actually be different than what the world has. Instead of looking like the world, we would look different if we would live this way. And people would want it. They would desire it. We'd be able to, we'd unable, be unable to stop the influx of people giving their lives to the Lord if we would be the light that we are expected to be. John 13.35 says, By this all men will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. The truth is love should be our calling card. That should be the number one thing people notice about Christians is their love for one another and their love for others. You guys all know about Gandhi, the incredible impact he had on the world in India and how he, he turned an entire generation of people, of, of lost and broken people, to, to, the relig to his religion, to what he's doing. And he was talking to, I forget who he was talking to, but he, I think it's in his, one of his, a book about him, or his book, it says, he said this, I like your Christ, I do not like your Christians. They are so unlike your Christ. Gandhi wanted to be a Christian, but because of Christians... He turned away from Christ. We don't ever want to be that person to somebody else. Can you imagine the impact Gandhi would have made for Christianity in India if he would have just been loved by the brothers that were around at the time? Final verses we'll look at is Romans 13, 11 through 14. It says, Do this, knowing the time that is already the hour for you to awaken from sleep. For now salvation is near, nearer to us than we have believed. The night is almost gone, and the day is near. Therefore let us lay aside the deeds of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us behave properly as in the day, not in carousing and drunkenness, not in sexual promiscuity and in sensuality, not in strife and jealousy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh in regard to its lusts. It says that we're to, to be awake, to be alert. 
In 1 Thessalonians 5, 2-8, it says, For you yourselves know full well that the day of the Lord will come just like a thief in the night. While they are saying, Peace and safety, then destruction will come upon them suddenly like labor pains upon a woman with child, and they will not escape. But you, brethren, are not in darkness, that they would overtake you like a thief. For you are all sons of light and sons of the day. We are not of the night nor of darkness, so then let us not us so then let us not sleep as others do, but let us be alert and sober. For those who sleep do their sleeping at night, but those who get drunk get drunk at night. But since we are of the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love, and as a helmet, the hope of salvation. You know, the day of salvation is, is near. I don't know when it's coming. It may not be this generation. It may not be the next. But then, again, it, but then again, it might be this generation that Christ returns. If we'll get together and do our job and, and preach the gospel to every creature under this earth, creature under this earth, then he's going to come back. The question is, are we going to be sober and alert and awake? Or are we going to be sleeping, doing the things in the night that the, that the world does in the night? Or are we going to be awake and alert, ready for him to return? Let's go ahead and put on the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's live as we ought to live in him. Let's be the men and women that he made us on the inside, being sober and alert, ready for his return. Amen? Amen. Let's go ahead and stand to our feet.